the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And we're back with another episode of On the Record with Tiffany here on 930 AM, The Answer, and on TAN TV, the African American Network Television. Um, I'm so grateful for this partnership between uh, uh, On the Record with Tiffany and the African American Network Television. We are where we have a local feel and a global reach. Um, And today I am honored to have the Honorable Rosie Gonzalez. Judge Gonzalez, can you tell... I'm I'm happy to have you. Can you tell our audience a little bit about you and your specialty court and what you do? My name is Judge Rosie Speedland Gonzalez. I have lived in San Antonio, Texas for over 33 years. I chose to live here. I came here from Vermont, where I was had gone to a military academy for a couple of years. But... Came to San Antonio by way of Vermont. I'm originally from Brownsville, Texas, which is the southernmost tip of Texas. Um, I was born and raised down there and ended up in San Antonio to finish undergrad and stayed here through the 90s. Then got a gig in Austin, left for a couple years and uh, went back home to Brownsville for a year before I uh, got admitted into law school and started law school as a non-traditional 33-year-old after having been in the social work fields for 11 years and then was in solo practice, never worked for anyone else but myself for almost 17 years before I was elected to uh, elevated to this bench in November of 2018 and took the bench on January 1st of 2019. So that's that's my journey to the bench. Wow. What prompted you to go from social work to law? Well, I think what happened was I got a hiccup between um, undergrad and grad school. Mm-hmm. The plan for my mom, for my brother and I, was always to have to be a professional. She, she was always, you're going to be a professional. You're either going to mm-hmm. be a master's level doctor, uh, teacher or doctor, mm-hmm. lawyer or law enforcement. She wanted us to have a career. And mm-hmm. for me, she focused on either med school or law school. In the 80s, I wasn't focused on either one. If you're my age, I'm 56. In the 80s, there were other things we were much more interested in. Um, <laughs> I'm your you age. Know, I'm 50. So, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> we were interested in Grandmaster Flash. We were interested <laughs> in a brand new drug called cocaine. Uh, we were interested in the clubs. The club scene was big. So, so I graduated from college. And then I started grad school and I dropped out because as a 21 year old, I did not have the mental acumen or maturity to value a graduate degree at 21. Mm-hmm. I dropped out. I ended up walking over to the nearest residential treatment facility by St. Mary's. And it was a facility uh, that housed children. We had two year olds to 18 year olds and it was a residential treatment facility. It was a lockdown facility. Kids that got dropped off to us were hogtied in the back of cars. Um, wow. They were the, uh, they had the most severe conditions, mental breakdowns, emotional breakdowns. It was a mental health facility. And that launched my career into working with children with special needs. Mm-hmm. I went from there to work as an investigator at Child Protective Services, where I worked for about three years in the 80s. And then I worked for communities and schools on the south side of San Antonio at Harlandale junior high and high school where I worked with a teacher by the name of Lydia Histant. She was academic. I was career. We worked in the same portable classroom where gang members who had self-identified were being segregated out of mainstream classrooms Mm -hmm. and put into these portables where I taught them job skills. She kept them up academically. And then I create, I, I developed the job sites, placed them, supervised them over summer paid them, disciplined them, fired them if I had to, 
that grant money ran out and Mexican American Unity Council picked me up. Oh, you know, I had another gig before that. I worked for uh, Catholic Charities. I was a community emergency assistance program coordinator on the West Side. Um, was trained by one of the best social workers San Antonio's ever seen, Carmen Badillo. And she and Maria Antonieta Berizabal were the founders of COPS, Citizens Organized for Public uh. Service, back in the 70s and 80s. They're responsible. I give, and Rosie Castro, for making sure those West Side streets got paved. Because up until then, wow. anytime it rained, the, the West Side was nothing but mud. And is you know? this still COPS? Is that still what is now COPS Metro? Yes, that's them. Mm-hmm. So, and then I went and worked for Mock, and I did Mexican American Unity Council. I ran a first-time offender program for teenagers, ages 12 to 15, with some history of substance abuse. And then I went and worked in Austin at Travis County Juvenile Department and worked in their diversion program as an ISP gang unit officer. And I had specialized caseloads of Spanish-speaking offenders, sex offenders, felony offenders. Um, and then... Uh, dad got sick, went home, helped mom out for about a year and a half. And that's when she came back and said, you should go back and consider law school. You know, you've been doing this work for 11 years. You still can't even break 40 grand a year. I see you work your tail off for people and you're smart. You're smart. You can, you can do this. She encouraged me. I'd also been encouraged by a, a woman that I had dated earlier and she got me, you know, researching the Soros Foundation. And she wanted me to apply to school in New York because they they have a New York University has a full scholarship for folks interested in public interest law that the Soros Foundation funds. In the end, I got admitted by St. Mary's University, my old alma mater, and I came back up to San Antonio and I I, um, finished law school. And then then I was in solo practice after that. And, um, you know, as an attorney, I felt very much like because of the work that I did, a glorified social worker, mm-hmm. because I went from being all those things that I that I did for people mm-hmm. to I tried my hand at a lot of things, a little bit of personal injury. I, I tried my hand at criminal defense. I, I did a lot of uh, defending of, of defendants in, in my court now who were in domestic violence courts in county court seven. Um, and I did a lot of hot checks representation and I did a lot of family law. And after about five years, I, I, I needed to focus in one area. I was kind of tired of being over there, over here and running back and forth this county, to that county. So I focused on family law and then I got to focus on child protective services because I knew I knew that I knew that environment. I knew those mm-hmm. families. Um, and by the by the last five years of my of my attorney professional career, I had gotten board certified as a child welfare law specialist. I was the only one in Bear County that was board certified, only one in South Texas. The National Association of Counsel for Children was the only certifying organization at the time. The October before I got elected judge was the first time that Texas offered the certification program for Texas attorneys. And so now we have a handful of, of, of certified attorneys who do who can say they're specializing in child protective services law but at the time i got elected i was the only one um and uh so got got to do a lot of great work for families uh for for foster kids for grandparents trying to get children out of foster care for foster parents trying to adopt kids whose families just couldn't get it together enough to get their kids back weren't appropriate enough to get their kids back so my heart has always been to serve, and I've always mm-hmm. been to, even as an attorney, now as a judge, um, to, to provide something in return to the community I li- live in and the community that I love to live in. Um, you know, I love it so much, I want everybody else to love it. And it's just unfortunate that some people have different journeys in our community. Some people are victims, some people are perpetrators. And so I'm trying to do our part to uh, address one of the big issues that we have in Bear County, which is child abuse and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's one and the same. The only difference is the age of the person suffering. The first time I heard you speak was right before the pandemic and uh, in person. The first time I heard you speak in person was right before the pandemic. And uh, you were talking about the specialty courts and and how you um made some changes to yours in particular because you you and this like totally blew my mind because i i really 
like to think of, of myself as, as always being curious. I like to learn. I like to, to look at things from lots of different perspectives. But uh, I really saw my own intolerance when you said that um, that the women were asking you to uh, to fix the men. Like they were like, I, I, you know, I still love this person. And, and what I'd really like is for you to, to find a way to, to make him stop hitting me so I can continue to love this person. And you said, yeah, okay, we, we I, had to, I had to try. And I thought that, like, that just flipped my thinking on its ear. Yeah, because you, know? you and I bo- both, and women around us, have friends in this situation. And mm-hmm. those are the friends that we look at each other like, Girl, she's back. Girl, she went back to him again. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. He left her with the black eye the last time he he did this. And she's back, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk to each other about that person. Mm -hmm. We love them. We care about them. But we're kind of like, what else? What do we we do? do? Yeah. Right? So that the stats show in our community, and if you talk to people like Patricia Castillo with the Peace Initiative and Marta Palaez with the Battered Women's Shelter, they each will tell you, or Carrie Wilcoxon, uh, who's, who, who does a lot of work with the faith-based community, they will tell you that the women, and even men, there are women and men who are at the other side of this fist in this hand, are returning to the aggressor, the person who uses violence, seven, eight, nine times. And at the mm-hmm. end of that journey, they end up in one of two places. They end up having left the individual for good or they end up dead. Mm-hmm. And so now we know this, right? We know that women and, 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 and some men are returning to the aggressor because they feel passionately, pr- profoundly that they love them. So what can we as a community do to help in that situation? Well, why don't we try to address the behavior and curtail, modify, eliminate the behavior so that when this person who has suffered at the hands of the aggressor decides to go back, it could possibly be a little bit safer for them. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we have an opportunity to change this individual. Why? Because we've learned more about the person that uses violence. We've learned in this court that 93% of the cases that come through county court at law number 13 involve individuals who were under the influence of alcohol, cocaine, meth, two or all three of them. And out of that 93%, when you talk to them, Almost 100% of them self-disclose that they themselves are adult survivors of childhood trauma, abuse, young adulthood trauma, or abuse. And they, they could not stop their own feelings of pain, anxiety, depression, and anger until they reached out for a substance to numb them. That numbing resulted in them becoming addicts. So knowing that my spouse and I wrote a house bill, once I got elected to the, to the bench, we went and said, you know, we got a great idea for a new specialty court. This is how we're going to do a new approach to domestic violence. And everywhere we went, the door was closed in our face. And they said, we're not going to help violent offenders. Hang them high. We're in Texas. You need to punish them. Not everybody needs punishment. Some people need treatment. Some people need treatment and punishment. Right. Mm -hmm. Some people just need treatment and then they straighten out. So we were at a loss. We were kind of had almost given up on the idea of this type of specialty court. When the godfather of specialty courts in Bear County had a conversation with me, retired Judge Al Alonzo, he was uh, he did his uh, dissertation work when he got his his master's in in laws uh, as a judge on specialty courts. He was very much interested in this concept. And he started the adult drug court. I was one of his first attorneys. Nobody would fund him. 
So he asked me, knowing the background that I just shared with you, mm-hmm. knowing him, my background, he asked me to work for him. He says, I, he says, I know you believe in my, in my cause. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I know you believe we can change people. So can you work for me for free? And when we start getting funding, I'll start to pay you. And I agreed. And now that's time, passion right there. Uh, you know, that's, that right there is what I love to call Texas ingenuity. Like w- there's there's something about knowing that you know what you're doing is right and that your purpose is is a righteous purpose and you need, regardless you need of what's going on, it, right? you just got to do it. You just got to make it happen. It. So we did it. And from that seed back in 2003, 2004 to the present – we now have 14 specialty courts in Bear County. Wow. We have the highest number in the whole state of Texas. Now, going back to what he told me, he said, write a House bill. We did. House mm-hmm. Bill 3529. It got sponsored by Roland Gutierrez, uh, House representative, and, co- and co-sponsored by Senator Jose Menendez. Let me just say something to y'all folks. If Remember that, how does a bill become a law? Schoolhouse mm-hmm. Rock cartoon <laughs> yes. y'all watched? In order for that bill to get off those steps and become a law in Texas, mm-hmm. you need to make sure your bill is sponsored by both a, a representative in the House and a senator in the Senate. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those two working together, your bill will not get out of the chambers. Mm-hmm. Okay. We had both. It got out of chambers. It sat on Governor Abbott's desk for about a month and a half, and then he signed it into law as an unfunded mandate. And he said, go for it. Go look for funding. So you Look had rep- you had people rep- uh, supporting you on both sides because the governor is is Republican, Senator Menendez is is a Democrat. Democrat. Uh, I didn't hear who you said was the. Uh, it was the Roland House- Gutierrez. He's Gu- also Roland- a Democrat. So Roland it was a, it was a, it was. So a you had you had a bipartisan, uh, yes. and that's something else for for people to remember that that you have to reach out to both sides of the aisle, right? Uh, and and you have to start doing this early. Because I'm sure you didn't just wait until session open and, and start. Right. And, and we actually start doing we were it just early. talking about it a couple of days ago that we never imagined being where we are now when I first mm-hmm. took the bench. We thought it was going to take at least one full term. And at the end of the term, we'd get to the specialty court. But mm-hmm. we got to it right out of the chute, right out mm-hmm. of the chute. And we were able to launch. It took an, a year. It took a year, Tiffany, for us once it's got signed, but that's in the law, nothing. That's no time, you know, really, to yeah. get to get our restorative justice DA at the table, to get the sheriff at the table, to get lifetime recovery at the table. You were working your hiney off, <laughs> getting yeah. all those people. That's a lot of people to, to get. You have to get all those team players to make this court work, and then a year later, we launched it. July thirty first mm-hmm. of twenty twenty, we launched it. August of 2021, we had our first graduating class with two women and two men. Right now, we have about 25 participants. Our next graduation is going to happen January 21st. It's a Friday. We are in the in the midst of planning that graduation already. So we have started the ball rolling. We work with the offender. It is a trauma-informed wraparound services and they graduate. Uh, so you, so if they're graduating, you, are you taking them through a curriculum? Are you... We do use a curriculum. It's called the Mission Possible 360 curriculum. It was developed and uh, by a psychologist by the name of Jerry Teo from Southern California. Wow. I met Jerry Teo for the first time ever back in the early 90s. I went to a Takata conference in Austin and he was putting up he was putting on a presentation on how to shore up the man again, how to make Mm -hmm. our men strong in our community again. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just impressed me so much. And then I heard his name again through the American Indian tribal associations. And they work very closely with them over at the neighborhood place. He comes in from time to time, but he developed this curriculum specifically targeted to violent offenders with the substance abuse problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly what we needed in for Mm -hmm. to get this court launched. So we have that. Adult probation has a, a special probation officer with with work uh, with a background working with specialty courts and violent offenders. We have um, 
We have Lifetime Recovery that works with us, Center for Healthcare Services. We have our own case manager. We have Oxford Homes and Alpha Home uh, helping us out, Comfort Cafe offers, uh, community service opportunities. The district clerk has worked with us. The county clerk is one of our partners. The children's shelter is one of our newest partners because they have a special curriculum for parents who have issues with domestic violence. So guess what? Those people in Reflejo Court, and I'll get to the name in a minute, who have children have that additional parenting component they must complete as part of our program. The program is called Reflejo Court. Reflejo in Spanish means reflection. And there's a story behind the name to the court. On the first day I took the bench on January 1st of 2019, a good friend of mine's father, Masa, who is a shaman out of Bernie area, came to my courtroom, into my chambers, and that did a native blessing and cleansing of the area. And at the end of his ceremony, he gave me a round beaded necklace with the mirror on it. And he said, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. Mm -hmm. On bad days, put this close to your chest and then look into that mirror because you've always known the answer and you just have to see it in your own eyes. And so that moment for me, was was a catalyst about teaching people how to use what they don't recognize that is within themselves. Mm-hmm. And it was it's very much part of our program. It's about teaching folks, one, recognizing their own trauma, acknowledging that hurt people hurt people. And if we can't fix them, they're going to continue to hurt people. Mm-hmm. People in this area uh, of problems will continue to create more and more victims because when they leave this victim, they find another one. And when they leave that one, they find another one. And many of those have children. And so then you become, you you create a generational problem. Mm -hmm. But if you can fix it at the spigot, there's a, I'm going to paraphrase Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela has said, we need to quit pulling the people out of the, the drowning people out of the river. And we need to go upriver and figure out why they're falling into the river in the first place to fix that. So we need to go to the spigot, right? The source mm-hmm. of the behavior, which is the trauma, address the trauma, give them those wraparound services. Let's get them sober. Let's give them the skills they need so that they don't return to the judicial system again. And, they, and we turn them into productive members of our community, as opposed to relegating them to the lowest rung of our a visible caste system, and you know it exists, mm-hmm. where people with any type of this, this type of criminal background are relegated to the lowest rung. They don't have job opportunities. They don't have educational opportunities. And parenting opportunities become limited. Why? Because now they have a criminal background. Now they're labeled a violent offender. But if we can get that addressed, then... They can get those professional jobs. They can apply for financial aid and they don't have to go into court and tell the judge, I can't be a primary because I got, I'm a violent offender judge. I can't be a primary caretaker to my kids. That's how much of a difference this program can make in the lives of people. Wow. Now, I really love what you just said here about, A, about the agency that a person has within them that they can that you can change you're you you're essentially giving them the tools to improve their lives and address the very thing that they undoubtedly didn't know how to address because something as as massive as as um as abuse and as the trauma that that a person has endured that causes them to to be an abuser that requires some very specialized um assistance it's just not something that you're going to uh, look upon on your own. You can't DIY that. And, and let me tell you something. We're, we are the one, the first, and right now the only court that is, uh, has stepped up to get that trauma-informed certification from the city of San Antonio's Metro Health Department. The wow. city of San Antonio's Metro Health Department has created a division to help with the education of our community in, the, in regards mm-hmm. to trauma and domestic violence. And they have uh, trainers that will come out to your organizations and agencies and certify you as trauma informed. So you can have a nonprofit and you can say, I'm a t-, and, and once you do their program, which is one and a half to two years, you mm-hmm. can list yourself as a trauma informed agency. 
You can have a school of teachers because I just contacted a teacher, uh, had communication with the teacher. Just, man, I really like what you're saying about the trauma. I said, the trauma-informed stuff. I said, you know, if you call the city, they'll come out and train your whole campus of teachers. And if you get enrolled, your campus can be trained for a period of one and a half to two years. And you can say your campus is trauma-informed because you're seeing those children coming into your classroom, manifesting all the signs of trauma, and you don't know what to do with them. But if you're trauma-informed certified, guess what? You'll know what to do with them. Audience, you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany and to the Honorable Rosie Gonzalez. And the thing that I, I think is the one of the greatest takeaways from, from uh, listening to Judge Gonzalez is that one person can make a difference. The, the idea that uh, they won't let you or we can't, that's not the way to go. When you see something, you see a problem, you can address the problem. And it may take you some time to get it all, to get all of the pieces together, because what you're talking about was a massive undertaking. What what uh, the Honorable Rosie Gonzalez did for, for us, uh, for our community, was a massive undertaking. And she did it. Right down, wrote legislation, got the courts uh, in order, and got the help for the community that was needed. Um, you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, and our wonderful partnership with the African American Network. We have a local feel with a global reach. Just pay attention to what's going on in, in the world around you and know you can make a difference, too. And we're back with another episode of On the Record with Tiffany. And today um, I'm here with Dr. Stacy Speedland Gonzalez. Um, Dr. Gonzalez, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing to, to uh, assist our community? Thank you. So Judge Rosie mentioned to you earlier about our house bill. She mentioned mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing together. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background on me before I yes. before I respond to the question, if that's okay. Yes, um, please do. Okay, so um, I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision. Mm -hmm. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm also a licensed chemical dependency counselor, and I am board certified. Uh, the relevance of all of that is to say that I've been working with clients with substance use disorders for mm -hmm. majority of my career. Um, and why that's noteworthy is I don't just work with clients with substance use disorders. I work with clients who are really treating bigger conditions mm -hmm. with substance use disorders. And so um, by the time they come to me, generally speaking, there's a lot going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. They're not just coming to me because they woke up one day and decided they wanted to stop drinking or stop using mm -hmm. substances. They come to me because there's trouble. There's mm -hmm. external factors that are going on in their lives, usually criminal justice involvement. Sometimes it's more civil, such as divorce, custody battles. Uh, they're losing their children. Um, maybe there's uh, a lawsuit involved. Maybe they're losing their job. But something is going on that leads them to uh, seeking my services, which so is what I've done a for a There's a catalyst that causes them to call you. That's right, a, pro a precipitating mm -hmm. event, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I have a small private practice here in Bear County. Uh, I'm actually, my, my practice is titled Lose Counseling and Consulting. Mm -hmm. uh, I do some clinical work. I also do some consulting work where substance use is involved. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little later. But I'm also an assistant professor in practice at the University of Texas at San Antonio. So I teach licensed clinicians. I actually was originally hired to teach the... Um, addiction class and mm -hmm. the crisis grief and trauma class so that is my specialty that's a lot of the work that i do clinically and educationally what what caused you to go into that specialty was there something uh along the way that you thought you know this this is where i belong this is what i want to do mm, that's a you, great question you've put so much of yourself into this it's a great question um i actually sobered up at 25 years old um, I'm 44 now, so you mm -hmm. don't have to do the math. I've been clean and sober for 18 years. 
Uh, I understand addiction more than I'd like to. Wow. Uh, I have my own experience and my own journey. And when I got sober, there was a lot going on in my life. So, yeah. So you it have, takes so, a, have the patience and the, the empathy for what's going on here. I understand the courage that it takes to get sober. I understand that just like domestic violence, if you've never mm -hmm. experienced it, there's no way I can explain it to you. Mm -hmm. Addiction is the same way. Until you experience the powerlessness of addiction, there is no way that I can explain why someone makes the choices that they make that mm -hmm. can be frightening to the people that love them. You know, the drive that you uh, and Judge Gonzalez uh, have this the fact that you wrote legislation that you just kept pushing even when it felt like this isn't gonna this isn't gonna work out y'all just redirected efforts and just kept going and kept going you know that kind of drive generally comes from a personal connection to to something mm -hmm. so some sort of catalyst in your own life and heart where you know i have to see this through because if I don't, I don't know that anybody else is going to have the determination to see it through. If I can be frank, it's not just a matter of experiencing things in our past. We also have to have healed from our past because mm -hmm. what we do not heal persists and manifests in unhealthy ways in our professional work. If I had not done the healing and the self-forgiveness, mm -hmm. then I wouldn't be able to work with people. And believe it or not, there are people who are survivors of whether addiction, domestic violence, or any problem in this community that um, do not like the people they work with because we experience countertransference. You know, whatever I haven't healed is going to come and sit in my office. That's the way the universe works. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it's important that I did my own healing. And, and part mm -hmm. of that healing for me, part of that awakening, and I believe Judge is consistent on this matter as well, is to be able to understand that there is no us and them in this community. Mm -hmm. Right? We are mm -hmm. all struggling with trauma. We mm -hmm. all have our history. We all have our idiosyncrasies. And how do we help a community heal? The solution is not always incarceration. It matters at times. But we need to be more consistent about looking at where is where is the precipitating event that led the person to the court system? Because otherwise, if it is substance related, then jail is insufficient. Mm -hmm. It's going to give them a timeout. They'll come back out. Nothing has changed. And we see those high recidivism rates mm -hmm. uh, in my in my work, I mean, I see people who relapse and remit all the time with substance problems, and it's easy to blame the person. It's easy to say you didn't do what you needed to, or you obviously don't love your family, or you obviously don't care. In until someone is there to really be patient with us and help us mm -hmm. and empower us to do that courageous internal work, which is not mm -hmm. easy. Mm -hmm then what are we going to do but continue on with the status quo in this community, which is very high numbers of child abuse, domestic violence, and addiction. We are one of the top counties of all three issues. You know, one of the things that I, I like about your program is that it's, it is empowering people. It's giving them the tools to do the work. Whereas in, in the past, you know, like I was saying to uh, Judge Gonzalez, it really, when she said uh, that the women wanted wanted the system to help them fix the men, mm -hmm. and that she was like, okay, okay, mm -hmm. let's, let's do that. You know, that, that really made me realize, A, that, that I had an intolerant, uh, stance on this, <laughs> you know, because because my first instinct was no, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, with the, sure. with the men, you know, as a woman, you're like, I don't think so, <laughs> you know. But as soon as I took a breath and listened <laughs> to what she had to say further, um, I was like, you know, 
she's right. Because mm-hmm. the women that are going through this, they do love those men. They're going mm-hmm. back. Uh, and, and the men that are going through it, they love uh, their spouses. And they're mm-hmm. going back and they're going back and they're going back because they love them. So at some point, figuring out what is the impetus that's causing the abuser to be an abuser mm-hmm. is a very logical question to ask. Yeah. It's just one that we don't want to ask. Often we don't want to ask that question. We just want to want to lock them up and throw away the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but that's never, that's never the answer. Mm-hmm. That's never the answer because it will never stop the problem that we're experiencing. Right. And please know there are times where people need incarceration, Mm -hmm. where they are just not safe, where they will not respond to therapeutic interventions. And the safest thing for the community is for them to be incarcerated. And we recognize that that exists as well. Mm -hmm. But if all you have is a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail. You know, mm-hmm. it, if, if that is the solution for every problem, you know, and when we talk about family violence, we oftentimes want to focus on spousal battery. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't look at a, a good percentage of the cases that come into Judge Rosie's court, which are family members who have an adult child who is living in the home with a mental illness or a substance problem. There's nowhere else for this kiddo to go. Culturally, they don't abandon their young. So they got this 22, 23 year old son or daughter who's living there, gets off their medication, starts abusing drugs, attacks their their parent. The parent calls the police and then the police arrest the this individual. And you see the families crying because that's not what they wanted. Mm-hmm. I just wanted you to come over and talk to him. Can you just talk to him and tell him to take his medicine? He's a good boy. You know, he's mm-hmm. when he gets off the alcohol, he's he's a wonderful kid. You know, let me show you pictures of his football, you know, his football days. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about this. This would be my son. This could be anybody's child who is just down and out. And we're hoping that the system can help us. But it be, it gets to a point where if families know that the only solution is going to be weekends in jail, they stop calling. Yeah. Right. We're just going to handle it in house. Next time he hits me, I'm going to call his uncle to come over here and hit him. And now we've got a cycle of abuse that has become normalized. Families are taking matters into their own hands. So what do you do? What, what, what are you all experiencing in terms of, of data outcomes with, with this (sighs) program? What? Are there some success stories coming out of this? Like, how are you? There are some success stories. But one of the things that we really wanted to focus on, because we've done a lot of the research looking at the drug court, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at not only the 10 key components, but a lot of the fidelity measures with drug court. It's very important that when cases are screened and considered for participation in a drug court, that they are considered higher risk cases. The mm-hmm. reason why we don't want to throw a lot of county resources at someone who would have done fine on probation. Yeah. Right. Or would have done mm-hmm. fine with a dismissal. So a lot of the cases that are coming in, a majority of the cases have been, well, they've all been screened, but a good percentage of them are very complicated. So you're putting and the resources so, towards the tough cases. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's what it's intended for. This is intended to not only be cost effective for the county, but to provide the optimal level of accountability. Because if that level of accountability is not necessary, there are other methods that judge can use, more mm-hmm. traditional. So the cases are challenging and they require a lot of consistency and judge has to mm-hmm. remain patient with them. Uh, judge has to develop rapport with them. What makes that challenging is obviously a lot of people who have had experiences with the court system do not see the court system as an ally. Yeah. So, so you have it, you have a, a lot of obstacles that you're trying to overcome mm-hmm. in in one case, in any in, in any given case that you're dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, because there is a, a definite um, fear of the authorities. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of minority communities. Yes. So when when something like domestic violence comes up and you already know that you've done something wrong, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do you how do you get people to accept the help that you're giving, that you're offering? It begins with developing and mentoring a great team. And Judge Rosie has that. We don't talk enough about the key element to the success of drug courts Mm -hmm. being a strong team that can look past the pathology or the Mm -hmm. crime, if you will, and see the human being and be patient with them and be understanding that people who have substance use disorders are accustomed to not telling the truth because Mm -hmm. they've had enough lectures, because they, you know, they've been pulled over enough times. How many of you had? to, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. they, they've, they've become accustomed to how they interact with people. So the idea that they can acclimate to therapeutic environments or any kind of atmosphere alternative to punitive or uh, incarceration is a transition from them for them. And to be able to understand that and to work with them and recognize the survival instincts of this population, which is lying which is not Mm -hmm. telling the truth, which is uh, a lot of times they change on the outside rather than the inside. They become that model patient. They say all the right things, you know, but they're not making the internal change that's necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to challenge that, being able to recognize that, having that, that strong clinical skill matched with the empathy and compassion for the courage that it takes because they could have sat it out in jail. Mm -hmm. One year of jail, a lot of my a lot of my clients will do that over over this because at least in jail I can be loaded. And you know, I I like this specialty program because and I like what you're saying because I think sometimes people don't realize just how much work goes into getting your life together again after having gone through something like this. Yeah. You know, it's it is work for the individual, it's work for the whole family. It's not uh, something that can be accomplished in 90 days. You and know. there are external factors that will come up against it. There are family members that will normalize their behavior. Uh, they have, you know, they have friends that, that all use drugs. And it's like we're asking someone to change their entire life just mm-hmm. to survive and do this program. And the thing that I'm not even talking about yet is what happens when people who have an actual addiction stop drinking and stop drugging, how hard that is to be sober. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the fact that the, that the two of you thought through and, and gathered a team to think through all of the aspects of this. uh, That's, you know, I thank you for doing that for our community because this was a major undertaking, trying to create a real path, a a real sincere path back to life and to a life that that, uh, the individual wants, Mm -hmm. to their dreams. This is a pathway back to their dreams and their goals in life before substance abuse came in. Mm -hmm. That is a difficult and time consuming journey just just to think of what the path could be or how to get them back to it mm-hmm. and then trying to build the bridge in terms of relationships mm-hmm. with the person and build some trust mm-hmm. you know that's a that is a a very commendable thing for you all to do. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you giving us the platform to speak about it. Um, I, I, I realize that sometimes it can be challenging in our community uh, when we talk about this topic. It is such a hot button topic. And the idea of helping, of working with offenders is, I, I would imagine, is challenging for a lot of people to conceptualize. It almost sounds like we feel sorry for them and we, you know, want to let them off the hook and that they should uh, somehow not receive any kind of punishment. And yet our real aim is to create permanency of change Mm -hmm. as opposed to a temporary solution. 
And the goal always with with any sort of penal system is to is to help help the person or the the perpetrator or you know however we're we're describing this to help the individual become a productive member of society. Mm-hmm. If the goal is always to help the individual become a productive member of society, then that means you have to do the work to become a productive member of society. You have to have the tools to do the work to become a productive member of society. And sometimes that's a lot of work on the opposite end for professionals like you. Because uh, 20 years ago, those specialty courts, uh, according to Judge Gonzalez, were completely different from from what from the iteration you all have created mm-hmm. in the specialty courts. Yep. yep. And it really came from the birth of the over-incarceration of people with substance problems. Mm-hmm. And they said uh, somebody stepped in in Miami. There was a judge in Miami that decided that rather than incarcerate them, can't we offer them can't we offer them therapeutic services, clinical services to render them sober so that they don't keep coming through our system? And mm-hmm. it was a novel idea. It was actually attempting to resolve the problem as opposed to, you know, uh, just follow the letter away of the, the law. Key. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, following the letter of the law, which is, I mean, the letter of the law has its purpose. We, we don't mm-hmm. deny that, but we have to really look at individuals because at the end of the day, and that's always been my challenge uh, in any situation, whether it's in the judicial system, whether it's in the clinical world, we don't always get to see how the decisions that we make impact the individual in the long run. Mm-hmm. There's no accountability there. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were a judge and I was a, you know, a civil judge and someone came in and needed a protective order and I denied that, what are the odds that they're ever going to come back and tell me what happened because of what I did? Uh, we don't know that. It takes so much careful consideration. And, you know, therapeutic jurisprudence, which Judge Rosie talked about briefly, you know, mm-hmm. this idea, this concept of therapeutic jurisprudence is where, you know, the the judicial community and the therapeutic community come together because we, we should work collaboratively. We're working with the same people. We're not adversaries. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a different lens and, and both are so relevant and important to the lives of individuals because my, my community, my clinical community cannot affect change, whereas the judicial community does and mm-hmm. vice versa. You know, there's just, it's just a different, it's a different exchange of experiences uh, when working with the same individuals. And so therapeutic jurisprudence is, is a way, uh, it's a lens, if you will, of looking at individuals who have a persistent problem in our community. And every year, billions of dollars are allocated towards the research and intervention of substance use disorders. And please know, we have not cornered the market in that, in that problem. We right. are light years away from resolving that issue in our communities. And yet, every year, we are confronted with new problems. The drugs are harder. They are faster. They are killing people younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are far-reaching. And every community is affected. And sadly, it took certain communities to get affected before they finally looked at the issue and said, my gosh, let's create a, a crisis. Let's, de- let's determine this to be a crisis. And this it, is not new. It's been a crisis for a long time, but often with with uh, crises in in this nation and everywhere else, uh, people don't notice it until it is overwhelming the majority. When mm-hmm. it's when it's just a, a a small group of people or or one segment, one demographic, nobody. Nobody's really paying any attention to it. But when it begins to take over the mainstream, then all of a sudden people can mm-hmm. see the, the uh they can see the humanity in it mm-hmm. more than they can see more than they could before. Uh because crack cocaine is a very good example of that. Uh now that we you know, when crack cocaine came out it, there was there were all kinds of uh punitive initiatives in regards mm-hmm. to that. Whereas with methamphetamines, people see that as something that, that needs to be treated in a rehab center. And, and uh, our, our children are being, being uh, accosted and given a drug that they shouldn't be taking. And I certainly agree with all of that. 
I agree with that, that our children are being accosted, but I think that we should see that for at the onset when drugs uh, take over any community, <laughs> any community, that's, that's a place where, where we got to nip that stuff in the bud from the beginning. You know, and I love that, that you all are thinking about this and have put, put together a program that at least gives them a shot. It gives them a shot at, at walking back into life again and into being a, a part of their family unit again. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany with uh, Dr. Stacy Spedlin Gonzalez. And uh, this lady is a hero and a warrior in our community for mental health, for substance abuse, and for a new pathway back to life. I thank you for everything that you're doing for the, for the people of San Antonio, Texas, and Bear County. And I look forward to seeing what you're, what you're going to do next. Thank you. And you guys have been listening to On the Record with Tiffany on 9.30 a.m. The Answer and on the African American Network where we have a local feel and a global reach. Come back and, and uh, visit with us next week. We'll be here. Have a great week. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930 AM The Answer. I'm Tiffany Smith, Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Kidney Foundation. And I'm here to talk to you about your kidney health. Health is the most important asset we possess. COVID-19 has exposed the unhealthy nature of our population. One in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. In absolute numbers, that translates into about 600,000 San Antonians. Have you been diagnosed with diabetes? Have you been diagnosed with hypertension? Do you take blood pressure medicine? Do you have heart disease? Have you experienced heart failure? Do you have a history of dialysis or kidney failure in your family? If you said yes to two or more of those questions, you need to come and see us. Are you a part of that one in three? Is your sister, is your brother, is your mother? Texas Kidney Foundation offers free screenings. All you have to do is go to our website, www.txkidney.org. Check out our free screenings. You can either come to our office for an in-office visit or we can come to you. You can schedule a screening or go to a screening near you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.